This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by Dreambox Learning. Dreambox Learning is an adaptive online K-8 math program designed to complement classroom instruction and proven to positively impact student outcomes. Just go to www.dreambox.com slash edsurge for more information. Let's say a college wants to reinvent itself. How exactly should it do that? For Southern New Hampshire University, the answer has been to create a sandbox, a space where professors and administrators can brainstorm and test new approaches, and where tech startups can pitch their latest tools. Since it was created last year, the Sandbox Collaborative, as it's called, has become a kind of internal consultancy for the university. It's even created some white papers to share with other colleges, and it runs its own podcast. Even in a place that's known for embracing change, the new lab has faced hiccups. The Sandbox's executive director, Michelle Weiss, says she has learned that the fastest way to make disruptive change in education is actually to go slow, taking time to get input from stakeholders across campus. Her mantra, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I talked with Weiss to get a better sense of this unusual lab and why she thinks colleges should change. We'll have the conversation right after this. Looking for a way to get students excited about learning math and help boost their performance? The Dreambox Learning K-8 online math program personalizes learning for every student while empowering educators to raise student achievement. Its adaptive learning technology analyzes how a student is handling math problems and keeps them in an optimal learning zone by providing each lesson at the right level of difficulty. Students will develop new strategies to ensure deep understanding of key concepts, to develop fluency with important skills, and to cultivate critical thinking. If your school or district needs a math solution that has been proven to enhance math learning in measurable ways, Dreambox Learning is your answer. Just go to www.dreambox.com slash edsurge for more information. That URL once more www.dreambox.com slash edsearch. We're talking today with Michelle Weiss, Executive Director of the Sandbox Collaborative at Southern New Hampshire University. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. There's a huge assumption in just about everything that you've been doing in your recent career that college really needs to change, that that there's a, you know, the disruptive innovation narrative that I think a lot of our listeners will know. And and the Silicon Valley kind of idea of that, that things, because of technology, everything's going to be different or there's an accelerating pace of change. But I still, I still I know I talk to professors who don't buy that or don't believe in that, that even that is, and there was a good Jill Lepore piece that ran, I think, a little over a year ago in The New Yorker, kind of questioning that narrative. Yeah. And I guess... What do you what do you say or to, what what is your kind of very short answer to like to convince someone why that assumption that you're basing the sandbox and other things on is true for higher ed like yeah. you know isn't there something great about the thing that's been the same for so long and that 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 probably you and I both went through yeah. very traditional there is absolutely and I think the the problem is that the narrative is cast in such a way that disruptive innovation is held in contrast to sustaining innovation. So that sustaining innovations or incremental performance improvements for a university are bad 
and disruptive innovations are the beacon that we need to be moving toward. And that simply isn't true. That, mm. That's not how we should be thinking about this. Um, there is real possibility in creating lasting and transformative change in incremental improvements. But um, to say that things should should remain exactly as they are, I think that would be, um, that works in certain contexts in which potentially higher education serves as more of a luxury good. Um, but for, for the non-traditional student, which is really becoming the vast majority of our student population, because most students don't go to a campus and have that experience that you and I were lucky enough to have, um, that's where the change is happening. It's not that higher education needs to change, but it needs to attune itself to the changing needs of the folks who are in need of higher education. So for all of those non-traditional potential consumers of education, those students who are looking for something different where they actually need a discrete set of skills to get them to the next level, to, to get them some sort of earnings premium because they are supporting a family, that is a very different kind of need and they need something that helps make them more marketable and is aligned to the labor market. So we can't, we can't just always make this easy binary between training is very separate from what we should do in college. Um, that there's something sacred about kind of that general liberal arts education and training is something else. There's no reason why they should be somehow mutually exclusive. And that's where I think we can rethink the way that we deliver higher education. And even if we want to stick to traditional liberal arts models, that is perfectly okay. But we just need to make very clear to our students how those skills actually translate into the workforce because they don't know until they're in it. And I think even sometimes 10 years down the road, they realize, oh, so when I was actually writing that research paper, you know, that 25 page research paper, that actually does give me really important skills in project management because you have to deal with a looming deadline and you have to create deadlines for yourself and you have to create these sorts of milestones. But we don't give our students that kind of language to think about, hey, it's great that you're writing this paper on Proust, but here's something to think about, you know, and here's a way that you can think about how these skills are going to be really useful to you in your in, in whatever you do. Um, I think those kinds of things, uh, we just need to do a better job for our students. But in certain places, yes, things will stay relatively the same and be okay. But for a large percentage of our student going, or of our college going population, they need something that is potentially more dynamic, more fluid, that gets them just kind of more up to speed so that they, that they, they can actually get a job or move between jobs. So, okay, so the sandbox metaphor of, you know, playing around and d- developing new ideas, what do you, what do you see? If, I were, if a listener were to walk into the sandbox collaborative, what do you see? What is the space like? What is it? Yeah, so it's this beautiful uh, open environment where we also have, it, it looks a lot like a startup people will often say. Um, so so the, like a Silicon Valley startup uh, yeah. architecture or yeah, design so principle. Open, or. open design. What we've tried to do is offset those spaces, those open spaces with little areas where people can tuck in and huddle up and have small meetings. But there really are no closed spaces in, in the lab. And the reason why that is, is um, this sort of decentralized structure that has fostered so much growth 
at our university has worked really well, but at the same time, we're at the point where on certain issues around student success, for instance, we really need to come and collaborate together. It doesn't make sense to silo certain problems that people are working on at the same time. And these are people like faculty members? Faculty and staff only, really. It's uh, So you won't see a whole lot of students in the space. Sometimes okay. we do actually open it up to faculty members who do want to bring their students in for a class. And there's a lot of space in which you can just write all over the walls. And that, I think, is honestly like the biggest, the biggest, the easiest takeaway that anyone could have at any university is just take a bunch of walls and just paint it with idea paint. And it's amazing to see kind of how people gravitate toward um toward what we call caves. We have these sort of angular caves where people can work on problems together. And we've actually had a lot of people come in and say, we've been working on the same problem for seven weeks. And then we came in here for 45 minutes and mapped it out on the cave and we figured it out. Um, so it's kind of this beautiful forcing function of just kind of getting people to stand up and work on a problem together. What's an example of an idea that's come out of the sandbox? Um, so... We had our College of Online and Continuing Education um, that now uh, teaches approximately 90,000 students. And we've had the academic team there come to us and say, we've read a lot about online retention strategies, but we feel like there's probably something we're missing. Can you help us do some of the research? We just don't have the bandwidth to think about uh, this issue. So um, just to, to stop a dropout or a retention exactly. problem. Yep. Yeah. How do we help our students persist better okay. through the learning process? And so we uh, created a, a really extensive kind of white paper for them. And one of the things that we, and we do a lot of this for the university, we are really kind of an internal consultancy for the university. And now what we're realizing is we've produced enough of these kinds of documents that we we're pretty sure that a lot of other higher education institutions are probably thinking about the same problems. And so now we're thinking about tailoring these and just sort of um, kind of rejiggering them just, so, just to make them more consumable for an out, uh, a public audience. And so... To put um, out white papers. To put out white papers, blogs, and we're transforming some of... You know, some of the people we talk to uh, when we're researching for those papers, we're now... Uh, featuring those people as experts in podcast interviews, kind of like this, where we'll we'll reach out to people and say, "Oh, great! I've got a new competitor now." <laughs> Excellent. Um, no, no, no. Um, so, yeah. Um, I mean, so we're trying to think of different avenues that people uh, like to consume information, and we want to be a, a real uh, a real resource to other higher education institutions. So that's an idea of making uh, making something better that already is there. Yes. But what about these over-the-horizon ideas now? Yeah. Are there people coming in with professors or, or others saying, um, I want to work on this or I've got this, this idea for... I guess I'm just trying to get a better sense of what are the kind of things that happen in this space? Yeah, so, I mean, some of them I can't totally talk about right now I just because they're... So <laughs> <laughs> this is like a, a startup. It is. Some, some things we need to keep in, uh, and this is something we've learned the hard way, mm. which is that you do need to keep certain things in a little bit of a stealth mode, not because uh, we don't want other people to do the same thing, but some of the things just seem, without enough context, can seem threatening. Um, to our existing stakeholders, so we try to um, we try to explore all kinds of ways of approaching a problem. Um, but let me just give you an example of um, one of those sorts of 
over-the-horizon innovations. Um, we do a lot of work with education technology, and we do a lot of vetting of vendors, and we help kind of our existing units think about education technology and how they might deploy it better. I'm sure you've got a lot of companies trying to sell you products or say, you All really need to use our thing. Yep. Yeah. So we do a lot there, and, it's, and it really is to help kind of incremental performance improvement. But now we're thinking about potentially um, working with a venture capital firm to think about a seed fund for startups. So that's kind of like a, a different way of approaching those over-the-horizon innovations as opposed to piloting it within our university. Um, we're just seed funding uh, potential uh, startups. So that's kind of one idea. Um, we're also thinking about uh, the way in which higher education is currently being unbundled and how it may be rebundled in the future. Because for a lot of adult learners, it's great that there, there are so many different learning pathways out there, but they don't know how to make heads or tails of it. So how do we, how do we build in a process where maybe we're not necessarily, as Southern New Hampshire University, the teachers or the instructors in the process, we're not necessarily teaching thousands of students, but we're touching their lives in some way, whether that's as an advisor, whether that's sort of an aggregator of different other pathways, and, and, and that requires different partnerships with other organizations, because we simply can't teach everything. But what we're learning is that a lot of employers are looking for dynamic ways to skill up their workforce, for instance. So um, how can we take what we already do, combine it with what other folks are doing, and then also rethink how we are doing, for instance, competency-based education, where it's not so not solely focused on degree completion, for instance. How do we think about micro-credentials and alternative credentials? And what are we going to do with the potential of blockchain technology to enable alternative credentials? This is what makes Bitcoin possible, yep. via the cyber currency. Yeah, okay. so, we're, so we're exploring all those kinds of possibilities. And so those are those over-the-horizon innovations, which aren't going to necessarily impinge on what we do today, but we see trends and we see signals out there that we think we need to pay attention to. A lot of what you describe, I mean, I, I, I mentioned that this is kind of like an R&D idea or an R&D lab that um, businesses have done for a while. But colleges, I know a lot of people, professors and folks at colleges get nervous and upset about the idea of, of talking or of treating the higher education, you know, education as a product. Mm -hmm. Do you get that? Have you heard that kind of pushback? Well, I, in my prior role, I was working for the Christensen Institute, so all I spoke about was disruptive innovation. So I'm used to pushback <laughs> and thinking about higher education as a product or a service. But, okay. um, but in terms of uh, worries about it being construed as an R&D lab, I think the, the thing that I think off-puts people or puts off people is that um, – is if they think that somehow there's a central place in the organization at our university that is the, that is the place that is responsible for strategy and innovation. Uh, because it really does happen across the university. It's not just in the sandbox. So I think that, that puts people off. But um, in terms of R&D, I think the only thing that people might see in what we do is that that doesn't look like traditional research in academic terms for instance. Um, and we're not doing the kind of substantial R&D that certain industry uh, you know, corporations invest in, in um, R&D. What requires a lot of socialization is the idea that failure is part of this process. And so it's very difficult in higher ed to 
to normalize the idea of failure and risk taking because it can look so bad uh, if if uh, if something doesn't go according to plan. But our the bulk of our mission is to explore all the ways in which uh, at you know all these opportunities which come with so much risk. And I guess it's interesting because you say you know that it looks bad when when things go wrong, but but there's some reason for that, right? And that students' lives are at stake yes. as you're trying to get a job or get ahead and you don't want to... Yeah, I, I guess there there are real differences in the kind of impact of failure at a, ho- at a college versus a company, right? Yep, yep. And I think that, I mean, that is a, that's a clear uh, risk, right? That's not something you want to play lightly with. But then there are also just sort of uh, structural dynamics in, uh, in an in an organization like a college or a university that maybe just simply uh, make things difficult, that maybe shouldn't be so difficult. Um, and that the idea of beta testing is not a normal idea in, in higher education. And so at some, it's, it's an important part to kind of get buy-in from your university. Uh, you, need, you need your stakeholders bought into a potential initiative but at the same time, we can't be apologizing for the detours and the things we're learning along the way. And all of those detours and parts of the iterative process are really informative. And we have to see those things as real moments of value. And we, as the Sandbox, have to communicate those as real moments of value. And you really, like the thing that kind of just keeps coming back to me over and over again in everything we do is you have to go slow to go fast. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And it's hard to go in, it's, it's unnatural feeling sometimes to go that slow, uh, especially at sometimes, you know, the kind of meetings that you have to put together on a campus, you go really slow. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and so it can feel like you're not seeing the fruits of your labor. But if you skip it, it's just a mess. And now, how did you end up getting into this in the first place? You know, what is the what brought you to this point? You mentioned the Christensen Institute, but but go way back. Like, what, yeah, yeah. why is this? Why is this something you've you're sort of devoted your time to? Yeah, no, I have probably the most unconventional way of getting to this kind of a position. I actually was an English professor, so I spent um, a good bulk of my twenties uh, going through a doctoral process. And uh, I was a, a tenure track professor at Skidmore College teaching 20th century American fiction and poetry and 21st, you know, 20th and 21st century Asian American fiction and poetry. And um, it was a wonderful experience. I also realized um, that I didn't have the same passion. And you, you also realize in, in when you're teaching in college that graduate school did not teach you how to teach in college. And so I felt very ill-equipped to, to do what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then I was surrounded by my mentors and peers who just saw this as their vocation in life. And I, for me, I was teaching Asian American literature to 20 white, really affluent students at a time. And I was trying to figure out how do I impact a more diverse student population? And when you're in 
an assistant professor role, it's not easy to just go to another institution. Mm. And I got my job right when the recession hit. Mm. So I was really lucky to have my job. And when I was thinking about what else might be out there, my advisors from my dissertation were saying, are you nuts? People would <laughs> right, kill for give, your job, don't give right? This up, yeah. um, and you can, I can't just say like, oh, I wanna, I wanna go work with, uh, in Oakland, California and you know, work with a more diverse student population. And so, but I made the conscious decision to think about, um, to think about that and we moved back to California and mm-hmm. I worked for an ed tech startup and we were working with service members transitioning out of the military. And that is really where I found kind of my passion uh, is, is serving underserved students. And um, that really, it was an amazing experience where I couldn't have got that role had I not been in academia because they wanted someone to serve as that kind of translator between faculty and the startup. And so I was their vice president of academic affairs for seven months before they had to pivot. Mm. And through that process, I reached out to... Um, our board member who was the co-founder of the Christensen Institute. And what's interesting is when we were working with service members, I got a real in-depth look look at every nonprofit provider's version of online education Hmm. because everyone wanted to partner with us to help service members while they were deployed start accessing. And there's a real difference, right, in what what it means to be an online education provider. Exactly. And so... That was kind of my first sort of landscape perspective of all the things that, are, that were out there. When I worked at the Christensen Institute and led the higher education practice there, every single entrepreneur came to us and showed us what they were building. Every startup, everyone wanted us to call them disruptive. So we got a real nice in-depth look. I had demos every day that right. I got to look more into. More than you needed. <laughs> yes, way more than <laughs> I needed. Um, but it was fascinating because I got this wonderful kind of private sector, nonprofit, uh, bird's eye view into everything kind of going on with education technology. And it was, it was really, really incredible. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes or subscribe there or on your podcaster of choice. You can follow EdSurge Higher Ed coverage on Twitter at Higher Ed Surge, And I'm on Twitter at J.R. Young. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.